Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Kelly Chen, a partner at DCVC, investing in early stage deep tech, and Kane Shea, a investor at Root VC, focused on industrial automation, previously at RE. Kane, Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay, first, what in tarnation is industrial automation? What is in scope? What's not in scope? How do you think about it? How do you make sense of it? And how do you explain it? Right. People often think about robotics in a factory when they're thinking of industrial automation, which, of course, is a widely accepted example. Uh, I think of industrial automation as anything that comes from a fundamental population shift and optimizing labor shortfalls. So an easy example here would be autonomous driving. And uh, a not-so-obvious example, and something that I think about a lot, would be elder care. We're seeing baby boomers reach the age of over 80, and we'll also see in the next decade, the portion of the population of a caregiving age to these baby boomers uh, will drop by half. So that means we need something, technology or otherwise, to make up for the, the physical and the social needs of caregiving that won't be available to these boomers. So in fact, caregiving will be one of the highest growth occupations in the U.S. in the next five to 10 years. And I think anything that supplements that human labor on a large scale on this front counts as industrial automation. And uh, I, I want to second Kelly's disambiguation of industrial automation from uh, robotics. Uh, I'll be honest, actually, that was originally my topic, but our friends at Lux and General Catalyst took that topic from me. So so I searched around a bit and I think the important thing for me is that uh, industrial automation is fundamentally the closing of open loops in industrial processes such that we can now apply a lot of computational techniques and optimize those processes. Uh, but, but unless those processes are instrumented and unless we understand those processes in near real time with a lot of precision, like all this knowledge that we have uh, about computational optimization, we, we literally just can't, we can't do it. And I think coming from software engineering myself and obviously Silicon Valley dominated by software engineers, there's a lot of things we take for granted in software that are great. But obvious questions like how much fuel does my tanker burn a day? Where did my crane put two tons of cinder blocks? Uh, and how many hotel rooms right now are occupied? Those are actually not really answerable. And, and until we can find means to answer them, we can't really optimize on them. And, and for me, that is what uh, industrial automation is about. So you, uh, Kelly, you mentioned uh, elder care. What, what types of industrial automation startups are, are you seeing in elder care? How would you describe that? Right. So I had spoken about fundamental labor force shifts. And one of our investments is called Safely You. And they're using computer vision to most accurately detect falls for dementia patients. So dementia is a neurodegenerative disease. And what people often don't realize is that these these patients fall on average twice as much as someone as um, at a normal at, a, at the same age. Uh, so these guys have a lot of in the wild data on elderly falls, which allowed them to uh, basically be able to detect them with the least amount of false positives. 
So now that you have this software in a room, you're not invading privacy in that you can only, you can record over yourself um, unless you catch the rare event of a fall. And in this case, you you can respond as quick as possible, as well as find the reason for the fall, which often dementia patients can't remember. Zooming out, we're, we're going to get into the, the past, present, and the future. But for, first, want to ask, how would you sort of create a market map or how would you slice up you know, for our audience, just the space in terms of how people think about the different types of companies that would fall within industrial automation. Right. I, I think the space is huge, right? You have anything from your whole manufacturing processes to all of logistics, which starts from your picking and packing and sorting to transporting onto trucks to, to long haul trucking to last mile delivery. You know, it, the hard part isn't even actually making the map of relevant industries. The hard part is selecting the processes within those industries that make good venture investments and good startups. Because to Kelly's point, it, literally anything that's not pure software falls under the bucket of industrial automation. If I have to move or affect anything uh, in 3D space at any point, that falls in the category of industrial automation. And and it gives us a pretty broad mandate, uh, which is a blessing and a curse. And again, the, the challenge is finding the specific opportunities that, that we feel like are investable. Totally. And I want to zoom out a little bit and ask you to sort of paint a picture of how industrial automation has evolved in, in the last, say, five years, last 10 years. What, why now is, is a particularly exciting opportunity uh, to build companies within space and how you see it evolving going forward? What, when I was looking at the, the industrial automation or future of work space in the last, say, three to five years, I found most of the opportunities in the software space. Um, and that's just because advancements in compute had allowed AI to take just a massive amount of data and make predictions at a completely new scale. So it opened up a lot of verticalized applications. And then now within the last, say, year or two, I'm really starting to see robotics catch up. And that's not necessarily because of advancements in hardware, but rather uh, algorithms that are enabling computer vision applications like sorting and detection to have accuracies that now rival or surpass humans. And, that, and that's the main metric we need to hit for industrial automation how to take previous workflows and make them more efficient, whether it's on the hardware or the software side, at a, a lower cost. And a lot of that cost right now is manual and repetitive labor. That, that's pretty comprehensive overview of uh, technological changes. I do think it's worth noting um, the part that's exciting for me as a, as a seed investor is that there's this virtuous cycle of that technology making these companies more capital efficient. And as these companies... As these startups get more capital efficient, uh, there's more interest from capital to invest in these companies. And as there's more capital to invest in these companies, there's more interest in starting these companies. And so even compared to five years ago, when I was trying to talk to co-investors, trying to talk with follow investors, um, I remember I could probably count on two hands the, the people I was talking to. Uh, and now, and now there's, there's like a wealth of choice of smart co-investors and follow investors that are interested in the same space. How should founders building in space think about uh, what are the biggest pain points here and what, what would customers care most about? And so I want to tie that question back to the idea of uh, closing loops. Automation as an engineering problem is, is super fun. And the thing that I, I have to talk, especially to technical founders, a lot about is like 
what are you fundamentally selling and, and what are you unblocking? Because if I ask you what you're selling and your response is a kind of technology, then you haven't really thought it through. Uh, because at the end of the day, the buyer literally does not care about your technology for, for the most part. They don't care about your technology. They don't care if it's whatever state-of-the-art thing you've built or if you found a, a bunch of leprechauns and put them in a box and, and they're doing the thing for you. The buyers are extremely focused on on their problems at hand. And that's usually one of two things. Can you unblock a process that could generate them a lot more revenue? Or can you meaningfully reduce a big cost driver for them. But unless your product answers those questions, it's going to be really hard for you to sell your product. And bringing it back to the, the concept of a closed loop thing, the thing that we see a lot is sophisticated operators actually intuitively understand that their processes are inefficient and they're leaving a lot of money on that table. And what's challenging is measuring that with more precision doesn't actually solve the fundamental problem. And, and the, the example I come back to is uh, if you think about fitness trackers for individuals, like I, I already know that I'm lazy and I'm probably going to die early. The tracker telling me that with more precision doesn't solve my fundamental problem and, and leads to churn. And so the product not only has to address a, a fundamental uh, problem with either revenue or cost, but to the extent that it can, it has to close that loop and, and automate as much as possible. Just Just adding sensing is rarely sticky enough uh, to be compelling. Right. And related to biggest pain points, a question that I get asked a lot is, isn't automation taking human jobs? And the reality is most of the companies in the automation space that are successful are focused on the biggest labor pain points, as in the jobs that have the highest turnover as well as the, the highest shortages in labor. If you look at the, the trucking industry, annual turnover for drivers is often over 100%. And there's about a 50,000 driver shortage in the U.S. alone. So it's, it's a job with long hours, long time away from your family, and pretty low pay. And it's also the reason that we made an investment in this space, uh, because these labor pain points for trucking companies arise from the grueling nature of the trucking job. And we feel technology has finally gotten to a point where automation is not only feasible, but it makes a ton of economic sense. So we think this is the, the future of trucking. What do startups typically get wrong uh, when, when they build in space? What, what sort of examples can they learn from or what are nuances or things to think about when, uh, when building or investing in industrial automation? I, I think, and this is something I'm guilty of as well, I think a lot of people... Uh, coming from strong technology backgrounds, exploring opportunities in industrial automation, kind of go in assuming that there's a rational set of incentives among all parties. And that's that's rarely the case. And the first thing that you have to do, that you have to very explicitly do in a disciplined way, is figure out who actually benefits from what you are attempting to do. And, and there's actually a story here within our portfolio that I'm going to obfuscate a little bit because we still work closely with a lot of the parties here. But there, there's these really big pieces of equipment that I guarantee every listener here has been negatively impacted by at some point in their lives. And uh, what one of our companies does is that they integrate some a little bit of hardware and a lot of sophisticated software to make that piece of equipment extremely efficient, right? It closes the loop um, and it removes a lot of downstream costs. So naturally, of course, the operator would want this. In this case, it turns out that the operators actually make money renting this equipment 
and their best scenario is an extremely low efficient low efficiency process that gives them more rental days and reduces the actual usage because then they don't have to maintain the systems as much. They make money on breakage. And it turns out that if you went and tried to sell your amazing system to these operators, like they sandbag you, they they accidentally leave your system unplugged. And from an engineering perspective, it's crazy. But once you realize what the divergent incentives are, it, it fundamentally changes what your product and sales process has to be. In this case, we actually found out a kind of roundabout way to sell the same system uh, into the institution that contracts these operators. And that turned out to be not an engineering breakthrough, but a very specific business breakthrough that came from understanding what the incentives in the system were. On our side, we like to meet technical teams early, often when they're just spinning out of academic labs. And there's nothing wrong with early, but often I see research projects or solutions in search of a problem, just any problem to solve. So I've seen some really impressive robotics with no commercial value or just revolutionary technical discoveries or innovative patents with no real go-to-market plan. And then on the other hand, I've also seen technical founders with no experience in a vertical who just dive in and try to understand the the biggest customer or industry pain points and just start tackling them one by one. And I like that approach a lot more. Uh, commercial ability and unit economics should really drive these industry transformations. So I, I believe if you understand a problem space and costs and your solution is better, then you have a business there. Where is the white space for, for something really interesting here? What would your request for startups be? Or where, where do you want to see more, more startups come out? Or where do you want to invest in? This is by no means a comprehensive list. But things that have been on my mind uh, recently, food production, by definition, an essential industry and extremely wasteful because of the perishability of the product. Construction, which is literally the world's largest industry, and interestingly enough, one of the slowest to adopt technology and one of the industries facing uh, the biggest challenges in labor volatility in, in manufacturing, where we, we have this interesting situation right now where our design tools in software have gotten extremely good because of the advances in computation that, that Kelly mentioned previously. Uh, but these huge advances in software are breaking downstream production capabilities because we're putting things into machines and processes that, that they had never even expected or dreamed about. And so, so even in the state of the art 3D metal printing as an example, getting a part to print correctly is still as much of an art as it is a science, right? Like we have a pretty broken tool chain in manufacturing. And something which is my most recent and least formed opinion, which I'm curious to learn more about, is uh, non-pharmaceutical biotech, where I believe we are seeing similar shifts in unit economics towards efficiency that industrial automation has seen in the past few years and, and software has seen in the past few decades. So I have a, uh, a bunch of overlap with Kane in the, the construction and manufacturing space. I think they're both very interesting. I've also been spending a lot of time in the grocery and retail fulfillment spaces. Uh, grocers have been just a lot more keen on trying out new technology recently, uh, a lot spurred on by the competition from Amazon Go and Prime Now Delivery. And it makes sense 
why they're, they feel threatened now. Uh, grocery is a high volume, super lar- low margin business, and you see margins often in the low single digits. So any improvements that they make to labor, which can account for something like 20% of revenue, uh, it'll really transform their margins. And then when you look at grocery labor, it's very high in turnover and managers are constantly having to, to rehire and replace leaving employees. So within the grocery space, uh, in brick and mortar, I think restocking, checkout, and inventory management are all opportunities for them to automate. We're also seeing a large growth in grocery delivery, which means automated fulfillment will be a key revenue driver. So I'm very interested in solutions in that space. In general, I like technologies that transform old school industries that have resisted change in the past just due to tech not being good enough. So with new technical limits and new economics that are now many times better what they have been before, the pressure to adopt in these old school industries will be just much tougher to ignore now. And a few spaces I'm seeing this in are in waste management, in specific verticals and manufacturing, and in specific lines within agriculture and food production. How about uh, your uh, the opposite, the anti-request for startups? Where are the bodies buried within the industry? Where would you advise people to spend perhaps less time? Low payload, low range drone delivery uh, is one that I see very often, and it's it's a tough one. It's a space that suffers from lots of regulations. It's small in scope, and it's really tough to be dispensable, which is why we probably are seeing so many of these kinds of companies. I also think we'll see some consolidation in the EV toll space, uh, in the many LiDAR competitors that are coming out with different sensor fusion solutions, uh, in components for autonomous OEMs. Uh, I continue to think that small satellite launch companies will feel pain. There's something like 80 different companies out there right now, many of which have started to shut down or have started to consolidate already. And there just isn't enough small satellites to support that kind of volume. Uh, we are already seeing winners emerge from, from that space. Also seeing a lot of last mile sidewalk delivery robots with very similar form factors and very similar underlying tech. And in general, I see a number of robotic solutions that are just too expensive and complex to be near-term economical, even if bomb came down massively. Kelly's statement about robots remind me of a, a joke that goes around the office a lot, which is, if it works, it's a machine. If it doesn't, it's a robot. The, the thing that oftentimes drives me crazy is whenever I see a company that proposes to use a, a general-purpose robot arm to do either basic labor arbitrage or complete simple mechanical tasks that don't require the full degrees of freedom uh, that the arm offers or, or where the value of that specific action is low. I do think that as a result of uh, a lot of technologies becoming cheaper or more commoditized, people are throwing a lot of technology you know, at, at ideas or products and seeing what sticks. General purpose robot arms is, is something that, uh, like I said, I, I'm extremely, I go in by default extremely skeptical. The other thing is anything around uh, predictive maintenance or, or generic sensor platforms. And to be clear, I'm not saying that there isn't going to be a big company that breaks out here. And in fact, I would bet that there is. It's just that this is where a lot of bodies are buried because that 
happens to be kind of the easiest thing to sell because it doesn't force you to consider uh, the value of, of those end solutions. Now, if you arrive at building a sensory platform because you've clearly thought through, there's actually uh, no extremely high value end solution that I could be selling in a more capital efficient way. Therefore, I should offer this uh, as a platform. That's fine. I just see, or my sense is that I see a lot of people that kind of go in building these platforms because they can without necessarily thinking through what what those applications or where that value comes from in the way that, that I talked about before. Let's talk about some of the spaces you said you're, you're excited and go, go a bit deeper. You mentioned cons- construction, cane, uh, and you mentioned also food production. Talk about subspaces with like where within those two spaces are, are you excited? What, what types of things are you looking to see? Yeah. So look, if I had a very specific idea that I thought was amazing, I, I would be a lot wealthier than I am now. But I can I can explain my framework a little bit, which is when I think about companies that propose or, or sell industrial automation, what I very specifically look for is uh, the generation of value beyond the arbitrage of the labor being replaced. And what I mean by that is um, the system isn't just doing what the human did, but cheaper. Uh, they are either unblocking a way for that system to generate a lot more revenue or unblocking a big chunk of cost in that system so that the lower cost can be passed through and generate more revenue uh, as a result. Now, the way the way to think about that is what are the things that you can do with the robot that were previously impossible to do? And so... An example um, recently on my mind is in harvest automation, a lot of labor shortages in, in fruit harvest has kind of led it to be a natural place where people are thinking about deploying automation. Now, if you if you go in and say, hey, I built this thing, it does your harvesting for you. Great. You've kind of anchored yourself at seasonal labor costs. Harvest automation should be pitching the, off the top of my head, the ability to grow denser because of the automation, which basically instantly increases your revenue per acre. You should be pitching uh, how you can do high-resolution supply forecasting, uh, which decreases the amount of money left on the table because best-guess market-making and distribution really screws um, a lot of uh, cash crop growers. And, and you should be thinking about all the ways that you're unlocking value besides just being a faster version of, of what you're replacing. That's that's really what I challenge founders to pitch. It, frankly, in a lot of uh, good companies we've seen, the value of the individual or the person doing that work is de minimis compared to the value unlocked. So much so to the extent that a really good industrial automation system doesn't have to replace the person there. In fact, they might justify increasing headcount because it's just leverage on the person. If the GC and Lux team didn't steal the episode on, on robotics, what would we have talked about in that episode uh, that we're not necessarily talking about here? Like, how do you think about the relationship between robotics and industrial automation? And what, what else would we have discussed? Yeah, so robotics is a, a charged word for me because I think it has a lot of connotations. Um, people think about anthropomorphic robots, or at least they think about industrial arms. Robotics is, is <laughs> it's one of those things where you know it when you see it. But in general, um, I always challenge founders to think about if they were to front load some of the uh, uh, NRE or non-recurring engineering costs, could they build a system that is significantly cheaper and more robust 
than uh, going straight to the robot, right? And in in a lot of applications, going straight to the robot is like in software. If um, if I spun up the largest AWS instance to run a simple query, right? Like, yeah, it does it, but it's not that's not particularly like efficient. And so I think people being disciplined about industrial automation, or in this case, robotics, treat the general purpose robot as a tool of last resort. And I'm always curious to see what people thought about doing and conclude before they concluded that the robot was the right choice. Uh, and Kelly, you talked about the grocery and retail fulfillment space where we are excited about what types of startups are, are you excited about there? What are you seeing or what are you looking for there? Right. So I, I looked all over in the grocery space, anywhere from supply chain, managing inventory, uh, to your checker lists, kind of Amazon Go models, all the way to robotic fulfillment systems. You're seeing some of the, the large companies here kind of out, out of maybe FOMO pilot a number of different startup solutions in the same space because a lot of these solutions look very similar. So they, Sometimes when you're meeting with one company and then another company in the same space, they're, they're very excited about like, oh, we have this really big pilot customer. And then you realize that it's the same customer across a lot of these companies. So you, we are seeing the, the large players start to really think about adopting this technology. A lot of it is just challenging right now in terms of differentiating the tech. So I would say that's one of the biggest challenges in the grocery space. But I I do think that groceries as we know it now will be pretty transformed in the next five to 10 years. So how does my grocery experience look in in five to 10 years? Am I, is it the Amazon Go model? Is it, do I, what, how how am I buying groceries? (laughs) How are we buying groceries? How does that take? Right. I think it will be mostly online. So right now we're seeing something like two to three percent of all grocery sales are online. And I think now with automating fulfillment, as well as all of these new last mile delivery options for you, like, like DoorDash and I mean, Neuro just weighs a ton of money. Going from automated fulfillment to last mile delivery, it'll just be very streamlined, very easy. And people won't have to, people buy groceries on a very repetitive basis. Like they'll, they'll usually get the same exact groceries every time. So they don't need to go to the store to re- replace the groceries. So I think it'll be very regular and mostly delivery based. So there, there's something I think about a lot there. And recently I read that Costco actually vertically integrated its uh, chicken operations. They literally own and operate the largest chicken breeding and raising operations in the U.S. And that's because they literally have so much scale that it makes sense for them to do so. And uh, I can imagine companies like Amazon uh, or, or some of the tech unicorns in food delivery or uh, in food production eventually reach some scale where it makes sense for them to vertically integrate. And these are these are companies that have the technical sophistication to implement a lot of industrial automation with certainly the cash incentives to do so. And I think the crazy thing, thinking about what, what Kelly said, is that we're not only going to see all these products and technologies available to the end consumer, the way that we've abstracted away businesses, like here's your grocery store, here are your farms, um, you know, here are your uh, uh, delivery people. Like th- those boundaries are going to blur and possibly fundamentally reshuffle um, as companies reach certain scale uh, with, again, closed loop processes that allow them to make 
really, really big optimizations. One thing we, we touched on earlier is how automation will affect jobs. Can you unpack a little bit about how you see that playing out? Who, who will feel the impact and, and how is it going to shake out in the next five to 10 years? I think the next five to 10 years will will be extremely transformative within industrial automation. Uh, I think we're going to achieve self-driving, um, maybe during that time. I think in warehouses and factories, most of the, the heavy manual labors and the, the lifting, the sorting, and the repetitive manual tasks will be replaced by robotics. And that's something we're already starting to see. I think food preparation at chain restaurants, I mentioned grocery checkout, fulfillment, and various aspects around delivery. I think that'll all be automated. Uh, we're going to have increased visibility in our supply chains. They'll increasingly become demand chains. So there will certainly be an impact on these types of jobs. And if you think about Uber and Lyft, they haven't made it easy for taxi drivers in that most had to switch and adopt the new tech-driven driving market. And, and back in the day, the Industrial Revolution wasn't an easy change on the labor force either, but most people agree that it was a, a necessary jump. So I think with the, the fundamental technological shift that we're going to see in the next five to 10 years, there will be a good deal of disruption, but it's, it's necessary if we want to advance as a society. I, I think it's also important starting now that we do focus on both re-education of the labor force as well as education for the next generation. Uh, soft skills, negotiations, as well as technical understanding will become increasingly important as we phase out some of these hard, repetitive manual labor industries. I, I know Kelly has a strong background in, in finance and macroeconomics. I don't actually have that background. And I, I actually think the idea of quote unquote necessary is, is it's pretty philosophical for me. I think about it a lot more bluntly, which is necessary or not, it's inevitable. You know, I'm, I've been watching this show on Netflix, which is excellent called Peaky Blinders, which is about uh, early 20th century Britain. Um, and it starts in like World War One and it, it ends towards like pre-World War Two. And uh, interestingly, through the shows and the seasons, you see how technology changes in their lives. And I learned there was something, there was literally a job called a knocker up. And it's, it's not as dirty as it sounds. It's just before there were alarm clocks or affordable watches, you would pay someone to come knock on your window when you had to go to work. Obviously that job was obviated. On the other hand, I don't, I don't think that job should have been preserved, but people will face real struggles in labor markets. And I wish I had the perfect solution here, but, but I don't. And what I can hope to do is remain empathetic to these struggles uh, and aim to fully understand the consequences of what we're working on uh, and hope that we're aiming for automation that generates wealth and raises the floor for as many people as possible, given the inevitability. Hey, Kelly, you, know, you have a background in quant trading. How does that, you know, that, that's different than other VCs in the space. How does that inform your work and uh, sort of give you a unique lens? Right. So, so my background is in probability models and optimization, which later led me to go into quant trading. But basically, my, my background and what has driven a lot of my academic interests is operational efficiency. So I have, I have two engineering degrees. I majored in operations strategy and during my MBA. Um, and I've been to over a dozen warehouses and factories by the time that I had graduated just because of my interest and kind of obsession with streamlining processes. So I, I'm, I feel 
fortunate that I've kind of brought that interest into my day to day in industrial automation now. But I think it's this, this passion for optimization and efficiency that's, that's really driven my focus at DCBC. Uh, for people who want to learn more about where they can follow you online and, and where they can track you, where, where would you point them? Yeah, so um, I'm just at Kane on Twitter, K-A-N-E. And uh, if you're interested in industrial automation, I, I run an account called Machine Picks, uh, Picks with an X, which just posts daily content on cool machines and uh, industrial systems. And my email is my first name at root.vc. And I recently finally started my Twitter journey. Unlike Kane, who's been a long-term expert here, uh, you can find me at kchen22. That's K-A-Y-C-H-E-N 22. Uh, if you're working on an early stage company in the industrial uh, space or in the future of workspace, I'd love to chat. And if you have any dissenting opinions, I, I love to hear them. So feel free to reach out. And make sure to just search uh, Kane and Ron Swanson. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a great episode. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 